0: Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond Harris. Today I'll be answering questions about text etiquette, tension between sisters, and whether to invite the problem child to your wedding. To help me answer these questions today, I'll be joined by Rachel Hampton. Rachel is the host of another slate podcast, ICYMI. It's a very fun show that keeps you up to date on all the wild stuff happening on the internet. So I was just looking at Rachel's Twitter timeline, and I saw the following tweets that I just thought might help listeners get a sense of who she is and where she's coming from. Number one, the thing about therapy that no one tells you is that it's like working out. Half the time you don't want to go, but every time you're glad you did. Smart. Two, I can now confidently say that the secret to a relatively frictionless move is working from home and... A lot of weed. Okay. Three. Realize that for the first time I'm the same age as the lead of The Bachelor, and now I need to lay down. Clearly a wise woman. Rachel and I will dive into your questions after a quick break.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back.
0: You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Rachel Hampton. Hi, Rachel. Hi Janae. Great to have you here. So you host ICYMI, and I've had the pleasure of being a guest on your show. And I just really appreciate you coming here to help me answer questions today.
2: I'm actually so honored to be invited. I've always wanted to be a person who gives advice. I will say that you starting off by reading some of my tweets was mortifying for me personally, but I do think it it helps people understand who I am.
0: Well, let's reframe Rachel. You already are a person who gives advice, and you've been doing it for free <laughs> on Twitter. So let's just—I
2: <laughs> really hope no one's taking my tweets as advice. They were- <laughs> That's terrifying. They to were totally of.
0: reasonable tweets. I mean, is there anything you want to say that was wrong in there? I don't see anything wrong.
2: There you I go. Don't see, see? Anything you wrong know what you're talking either. about. <laughs> I mean, clearly, I tweeted it, <laughs> and you meant it. I think it's correct. I did. I meant every word. I meant every word. I'm more just like, wow, what people know about me is I go to therapy, I just moved, I clearly enjoy weed, and I watch The Bachelor. Which, it does encapsulate me as a person. That does actually really accurately sum me up.
0: And you're getting to be the same age as the lead of The Bachelor. Oh my god, and you, you, yeah, you handle your problems <laughs> by lying down. Anyway, with that, let's dive right in with our first <laughs> <Who doesn't>? letter. <laughs> the first letter is titled, Need Text Etiquette.
1: Am I a terrible person if I have a difficult conversation with my boyfriend over text? We've been together for several months, but we travel a lot and don't see each other as often as most couples. We decided that we weren't going to have something serious because of the traveling. For about the past month, we've been traveling less and seeing each other a little bit more. It's made me realize that I like the amount of time we were previously spending together. It's made my boyfriend realize he wants something more serious. Over the weekend, he got really drunk and mentioned that he thought I was endgame. I don't want something that serious. Normally, I would talk to someone in person about this, but talking to him is like talking to a brick wall. Communication is so difficult with him unless he's been drinking, and even then it's not great. I just don't want to talk to him about this in person. I don't think it's going to go over well with him. Is it immature of me to tell him I don't want anything serious over text?
0: So first of all, when I heard Endgame, it sounded so violent. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) But now I'm seeing that he wants to be with her forever. Endgame. It sounded like something out of an action
2: movie or something. Avengers. (laughs) Endgame. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. It's like kind of like shipping language, like fandom mm-hmm. language that they want like characters in a show to be in-game or like in a franchise to okay, be in games. So, you're already yeah. being helpful with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad um, I could be helpful. And I'm
0: glad you said that because I was about to say this isn't a question about texting. This is a question about relationships and what does it mean to have a significant other. And I think there's some really rich material here because I work off of an assumption that if you're um, older than, say, 19, okay, 20, and you're in a relationship, you're at least open to the possibility of it turning into something serious, right? In my world, there isn't really a situation in which you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're both like, this is definitely
3: going nowhere.
2: (laughs) Is that right? Am I right about that? Um... I think that is how I hope people proceed in the dating world, but I would say that is not how people proceed in the dating world, like at all. Really? I, I would say that no, it it's I I thought you were gonna say any any younger than 30 is mm. is how bad it is out here in the dating trenches.
0: Now, okay, okay. I know that a lot of people don't want to get to the point of labeling things boyfriend or girlfriend, and that's a big thing in the dating trenches. I also know that a lot of people are wishy washy about whether there's definitely a future. But are people really Mm -hmm. in relationships going, you're my girlfriend, but we have no future together? Is that really a thing? Yeah. Really?
2: Okay. Yeah. I think that people don't, and it's completely fair. If you don't want to get married and it's not part of the Vision that you have for your life, then mm. it's not really, it doesn't really mean anything bad to have it to your relationship with someone and have it end and that just be it. Like you had a good time with someone and they don't have to be part of your permanent future. And I think a lot of people think like that. And I think that's completely fair, but I think this is a communication issue more than anything.
0: That's really eye opening because I was really going to tell this letter writer that. If you definitely don't see a future, don't worry about the mode of communication. Just end it. You should be with someone, not who you definitely know you're going to grow old with, but someone who you at least are open to the possibility of a future with. But you're changing my mind a little on that. So I guess we will answer (laughs) the question as written, which is,
2: can she do it over text? Ooh, that is it's a hard question. My eyebrows were raising the entire time mm-hmm. I was reading this question because, at first, it, it's it's kind of a perfect encapsulation of the "you had me in the first half" meme, where I thought that perhaps this was just you know a. Uh, a kind of mismatch between how people think of their futures mm-hmm. but then she says talking to him is like talking to a brick wall and that communication is so difficult with him unless he's been drinking and even then it's not great mm-hmm. which what is this relationship predicated on if you can't talk to him when he's sober and Wait, all- let's
0: even go a step <laughs> back you don't enjoy being around him
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly it feels very why are we doing this convenient where i mean i think some people are just like i like having something in the background i like n- in my relationship not necessarily being the focus of my life it's just you know an added portion of my life where i see this person every so often we have a great rapport it's a situation more than anything else mm-hmm. but he does not seem to think it's a situation <laughs> Right. Which is, it's a bad state to be in. <laughs>
0: it's a really bad state to be in, and it's the right thing to do to let him know.
2: Oh, um
0: I hate to say it, but I think that if he knows what he's doing and he learns that this is going nowhere, he's going to end it and find someone who would like a future with him, right?
2: Yeah, and that's fair for him to do that. But... I mean, to the question of, is it immature to tell him over text? I guess it depends if they're in the same city at the time that this conversation happens. If they're traveling and they're in different cities, then I I would at least have the kind of inciting conversation over text and offer a phone call. Because if she thinks that the conversation isn't going to be productive, in person, then I don't know if it is any more or less, I guess, rude to have it over text.
0: So I don't think it's immature, but I do think it is telling and something to reflect on that you don't want to have a face to face conversation with this person because communication with him is difficult and he seems to have issues with alcohol. Um, these are just things that I always like to say, just put a note in his file. Um, you don't mm-hmm. have to break up completely this moment, even though he might do it with you, but um, be conscious of the fact that you have a hard time being around this person for long periods of time. You're not great at talking to each other and he seems to drink a little too much and be really unpleasant when that happens. So I want the letter writer to know that you deserve someone who whether or not you see a long future with them who you like being around and can talk to that's not a lot to ask
2: i was going to say i really feel like we're you're going for the bare minimum mm-hmm. here which is that you like to be around this sometimes, person and not that a they lot. are sometimes maybe not all the mm-hmm. time but you know sometimes and that you can have a real conversation with them when they're not under the influence of alcohol mm-hmm. um those I'm going to say that's kind of a a bare minimum. And the fact that she doesn't find those qualities in him is a sign that they need to break up and that they should just do it however, the most expedient way possible.
0: So official answer, texting is fine, but the text needs to be about let's break up, not let's let's go back to spending less time
2: together. Yeah, I think it would be even more heartbreaking for me from my partner to say, I don't want to break up with you, but I do want to spend <laughs> less time with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> that just, I'm honestly getting a little <laughs> stressed out just thinking Seriously. about it. Um, and especially for not even spending a lot of time together. If you were spending like, 24 hours together I'd be like okay cool we need space to, to hang out with our friends but if you were seeing each other rarely mm-hmm. and you're like let's go back to even more rare I would I, <laughs> I would cry <laughs> absolutely so yeah just just Rip that Band-Aid off. I will say that if you do send a text, make sure that it's well thought Mm -hmm. out. Make sure that it's considerate. Make sure that it says, like, as much as you need to say without being cruel. And then I would also offer up the chance to have a conversation face-to-face or over a phone call. And then maybe explain why you want to have this conversation over text. You can say, like, I find it hard to have conversations with you face-to-face. Sometimes it feels like we don't communicate well and I want to make sure I get all my feelings out. But we can have this conversation face-to-face if you want to. Um, I'm open to that. I would definitely give this guy an opportunity to say something. I think that's fair.
0: Rachel, I think that's so smart. That's the perfect plan. Just be transparent about your feelings, put it in text and do it as compassionately as possible with an explanation of why it's happening over text, um, which by the way, I think is very legitimate if you don't communicate well in person and this person doesn't share his feelings unless he's drinking, absolutely press send, leave an open invitation to talk about it in person, um, be honest, and don't string this person along any longer. It's not fair. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show, and when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. can't get enough Dear Prudence, then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash prudyplus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash prudy plus. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Rachel Hampton, to answer your letters. All right, the last question was a good warm-up, but this next one might be a little bit more challenging. Um, Rachel, are you up for it?
2: Um, I mean, if that was the warm-up, I'm not sure, but, you know, throw it at me. <laughs> Hit me.
0: <laughs> okay, here we go. This question is titled Sister Struggles.
3: I have been a surrogate twice before. Both times were arranged through a lawyer, and I was paid handsomely for the process. Both pregnancies and births were easy, and it brought me joy to bring such wished for babies into the world. My husband and I paid off our house and started college funds for our kids. My sister has approached me about being a surrogate for her and her husband since they discovered they are infertile it came out of nowhere and i told her i had to discuss it with my husband i was her sister i would be a surrogate for complete strangers but not her this is my sister to the t quick to get angry thin-skinned and holds grudges like there is no tomorrow i escaped the conversation by claiming we would need to talk to my doctor first and foremost My husband and I have agreed that getting involved in a surrogacy for my sister is asking for trouble, especially if we ask for money. We were considering doing it one more time for a retirement nest egg. What are our options here? First, we tell my sister no, we will never hear the end of it if we do the surrogacy for someone else. Secondly, we lie and say the doctor found it too risky and didn't do anything. That way we keep the peace. I've been keeping the peace since I was a child, my head hurts for my sister's fertility struggles, but not for attitude and actions. An outside perspective would be nice.
0: So, this is really, really hard. I've talked about in the column several times and on other Slate podcasts about how I needed a lot of medical help and a lot of money to have my child. And I remember at one point not knowing whether IVF would be successful with my own eggs and I was kind of like looking at my little cousin sizing them up like these very healthy like 23 year olds being like I wonder if it came to it like it wouldn't be a big deal to give me a few Mm -hmm. eggs right um there is a desperation in wanting a child and not knowing if you'll get it it's not totally unlike mourning a death it's like a person you want to be there alive Mm -hmm. and you don't know if they're going to get to be alive um So I just want to, like, be clear about my bias coming into this. Um, I get where the sister is coming from. That said, it's obviously a no. Letter writer has to say no. And I think I have a good white lie to sort of split the difference between her two responses. So you don't Mm want to say I talked to my doctor and the doctor said it's too risky because you may want to, you know, make another tens of thousands of dollars by doing this for a stranger again. I think you want to say I talked to my therapist. And my therapist said, it's a really bad idea for us in our relationship. And it would take too much of a toll on me psychologically um, to, you know, be the the biological mother of a child who I'm not raising. And Mm. this often really destroys families if they're not just sort of perfectly situated emotionally to handle it. So for the health of our relationship, I have to say no. Um, and I think you want to sandwich that between just tons of empathy for what she's going through because it's gonna be really hard to hear. Um, and it sounds like she's gonna be left in a pretty bad place um, when it comes to growing a family.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a perfect answer. I think what you're saying about approaching with empathy really kind of, Makes a lot of sense to me. My therapist actually recently told me that more often grief isn't necessarily of a thing, but of the possibilities that die with the thing. And Mm. so it makes a lot of sense that so much of wanting a child and that desperation is grieving this life that may or may not come to exist. But I do think the fact that she said this describes my sister to a T quick to get angry, thin-skinned, and hold mm. grudges like there is no tomorrow suggests to me that you do not want to be um, beholden to your sister in this way for 10 months of right. being pregnant. Um, and I think that your suggestion of that little white lie makes a lot of sense. I mean, it also might even be true. Does she know if she wants to be in kind of community and perpetual this weird hold space of this child that she gave birth to that's not hers. Right. And knowing her sister, and again, her sister who wants this child so desperately, she's going to be extremely, like, possessive of her child. And I just can't imagine the tension that that would create of knowing And the jealousy that would create of knowing Mm -hmm. that your sister carried your child that you couldn't, and now having to be very specific about, like, I'm your mother, not her. I just wouldn't want to introduce the 10 months of pregnancy and then the X many years of this child's life and how that could tear apart this family. Like, I I just don't think it's going to work out. But I do think you have to be prepared for your sister to not take it well. Like, it's her her right, in a way, to grieve over this.
0: And... Even if we didn't have these personality issues with the sister, um, let's just say she's an angel, she's emotionally mature, they've always had a great relationship. It's a lot to ask to go through a pregnancy for free. Mm-hmm. I assume the letter writer, well, I know the letter writer did it before for the money. Yeah. Not because she really, really loved being pregnant. You know, she was able to pay off her house and create some savings for her family. It's entirely reasonable to say, I'm not going to do that for nothing. Um, it takes a huge toll on your body. There's enormous risks, even if you're very healthy, every time mm-hmm. you get pregnant. I mean, huge. It's just, it's it's beyond reasonable to say no. And again, it's beyond reasonable to be devastated that your sister said no. Yeah. So this is really kind of one of those no-win situations. Um, I would suggest to help that just a little bit for the letter writer to tell her sister she'll help her in any way possible. Whether that's applying, there's some grants out there for infertility. um, Maybe they could do crowdfunding, even though I know there's a lot of other things going on in the world and no one wants to pay for you to just get a child when adoption is available. Um, But really put yourself, if you want this relationship with your sister, put yourself out there um, as willing to do like almost anything short of giving up your own body to get her her baby.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's the best you can possibly do to salvage a relationship without, yeah, giving up your body.
0: And I think this might be an announcement to make in a letter. Um, sometimes when things are so sensitive, um, I think it's good to get time to make sure you can write down your thoughts exactly as you want to share them. Um Maybe take the time to just sit down and write out the clear explanation, what your white lie therapist said, which is probably true anyway, um, how much you love her and what you are willing to do to help her get to where she wants to be in terms of having a baby. Um, And then either use that as bullet points in an in-person conversation or actually send it to her. But just something to make sure that um, nothing is lost in translation. Nothing sort of offhand is said that ends up being hurtful.
2: And... It's going to be hard, but I would also recommend that if your sister does get angry in this conversation to as much as possible, let it roll off your back. Just try not to rise to Mm -hmm. that anger, even if it gets, I mean, sibling fights are, uh, (laughs) can get nasty. But I think just, just don't give any purchase for her to kind of make this anything more than the decision that you're making for your own health.
0: Such a good point. You want to make sure you don't give her anything to be upset about. You want to remain sort of the reasonable good guy in this situation. Um, And also just as an act of Mm -hmm. care for her and how tough her situation is, maybe just be willing to absorb some of that anger um, and not take it too personally if she doesn't react well. Good luck. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay
2: tuned. Adultish is back. And this season, we're talking about standing up and learning how to take a stand for issues on the minds of young people, like... Book bans.
1: The book banning side, they have an incredibly well-oiled machine. Filling in food deserts.
2: We have three community colleges where we either provide food boxes or an actual operating farmer's market.
3: And what's affecting young people's mental and emotional health. Pressures of school, friendships from romantic relationships, pressures from family.
2: New episodes of Adultish from YR Media drop every Thursday, so subscribe wherever you're listening now.
0: You're listening to Dear Prudence, and we're back to answer your letters. We've reached our last question. Rachel, are you ready to give out one last nugget of wisdom?
2: I can't believe it's the last question. I guess I am. This letter is titled,
0: Children Welcome.
1: I was torn over whether this was a care and feeding question, but ultimately, it's about the whole family. My fiancé, Jack, and I are facing a problem with our plans for a 60-person wedding. We both like kids and have siblings and friends with children. Ideally, we'd like to have our wedding be kid-friendly, but we worry we might have to make it child-free, all over one child. Jack's 10-year-old niece, Annie, has really permissive parents— and fairly substantial behavior issues. Think roughly taking toys from younger kids, including toddlers, at family holidays, screaming meltdowns when she doesn't get her way, and recently at a family funeral, she hit one of her younger cousins in the face for, quote, being a crybaby. Clearly, Annie is unhappy, and we try to make a 15-minute window to talk just to her when we see the family, but it's hard to know what's going on. Gentle suggestions from my in-laws and offers of financial support for therapy or a developmental pediatrician have gone nowhere. And the family gossip is that her parents will not allow Annie to be evaluated in any way at school either. Jack's family is now split on whether or not they want to invite the trio to holidays and events. Family and family friends with children do not invite them because they don't want to have Annie around their kids. The in-laws had two separate Christmases this year to combat this. Nonetheless, Jack really wants his brother, Annie's dad, at the wedding. Which is reasonable, except we don't want Annie to be around her friend's kids, or my nieces and nephews. Annie's parents are understandably very, very sensitive about her. And while I'd like to believe a private conversation could help smooth out this choice, I doubt it. Either way, it's likely to cause huge family drama. How do we navigate this?
0: Okay. I know you said you wanted to have a child-friendly wedding, but I want to make the case that you do not want that. And it's not about the kids. The kids are usually delightful, aside from this very violent one. Um... (laughs) I think in general, child-free weddings are better only because they allow the parents to actually be present and have fun. Um when there are kids involved, the parents just aren't really, this sounds so selfish and bridezilla-ish, but they're not really celebrating you. They're like feeding their kids the chicken nugget meal. They're worried about their nap time. Mm-hmm. They're leaving early. And you're never gonna get that like fun celebratory vibe that you really want at your wedding. Thoughts, right?
2: I agree. Having been to exactly maybe two weddings in my life, the first time I was a child, and I don't remember anything of it besides the fact that I was a flower girl. Mm-hmm. So if it makes you feel any better, your nieces and nephews won't remember this moment. I'm going to be completely honest. The second I went to as an adult, and while it might have been fun to have children there at some point, the point of a wedding, unless it's an alcohol-free wedding, is to drink and have fun with your friends. Right some of whom you might not see for a really long time because of the way life works. Like, weddings are kind of a big opportunity to see people that you haven't seen for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like as a kind of party celebrating you and your love and your marriage, you're gonna want to have as much fun as possible. And I think that means not having children there. And also think about how much money you save on having a kid-friendly, like, Course, you don't yeah. have to get chicken nuggets and french fries because God knows they're not eating the salmon plate.
0: <laughs> and this isn't, this little girl is not the only person who might cause a scene. I mean, there's probably going to be a baby crying during your vows. Mm-hmm. There's going to be someone running around doing whatever, you know, spinning in circles on the floor. Maybe that's cute, maybe it's not. I don't know. Just open your mind to the possibility of a kid free wedding. But I want to answer the question that was asked. So, how do we handle it if you do want children there in general? Um, so a thought exercise. Let's just think about what's the worst case scenario with Annie there. Um, if she throws a tantrum, okay. What's I mean, nobody dies, right? You're not going to notice it if your wedding day. You're not going
2: to know anything that happens. Um, I mean, no one dies, but a kid might get smacked in the face. Okay,
0: okay, so that's where I was going. <laughs> the thing you're trying to avoid is like a four-year-old getting beat up by a ten-year-old. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I think what we can do about that is a couple of things. Um, you can warn the other parents. It sounds like Jack's side of the family already knows that Annie is not someone to let their children go play with. You could also hire a babysitter at the venue to watch kids nine and under. So that way anyone younger and more vulnerable oh. than Annie will be like off in a side room at the hotel <laughs> um, watching a movie. <laughs> And Annie will be around at least, like, kids her same age and size. So she decides to fight someone they can fight back. And you're keeping the toddler safe from her. Is that a decent idea?
2: I think that's a great idea. It's just deeply funny to me the amount of mitigation efforts that you have to put in place for one child. And once again, if there's one thing I know about weddings is that they're expensive. So if you're going to be adding in separate babysitting services for nine and under, this sounds like another reason to not have kids at your wedding. Yes. Um, but I do agree that, yes, if you do really, really want a child-friendly wedding, then separating the smaller children from Annie is the best thing you can do. Because no one's going to think great if Annie starts beating up a four-year-old in the middle of your wedding. Right. You know? Like, <laughs> that's not going to go hate over that well. I we can't
0: do anything involving her parents because I just don't think it's realistic to say, hey, parents, could you, like keep a really close eye on her or, you know, talk to her about appropriate behavior. It sounds like that's just not something that's realistic. Um, The parents are in denial or not on the same page. So I don't think we can rely on them for anything, even keeping a close eye on her.
2: I think that's true as well. Which, I mean, I understand why parents are sensitive about their children, but also if your child is causing this amount of disruption, then... You have to notice that your child also isn't happy. And this letter also says that Annie isn't happy. So I feel like, I mean, around a wedding is never time to have, like, a big conversation with your family because Mm -hmm. tensions are already mad high with everything that's going on. But I would say that after the wedding has calmed down, maybe have one more go of trying to get Annie to see, like, a developmental doctor or something because Annie deserves to be happy. I'm worried about Annie.
0: You know what? Thank you for saying that. And I hate that I didn't think it. I'm just trying to protect the Um, four-year-olds. I'm I'm also worried about the (laughs) four-year-olds. I was worried about the fun of the wedding, then the four-year-olds, and then Annie. And then Annie. The poor troubled child who's not getting the help she needs. Yeah. Um, But no, I think that after the wedding, again... um, Don't just say like, "Woo, we got off without any broken bones, we can forget about this family. It would be nice to try to do whatever you can to get Annie the help that she obviously needs.
2: Yeah, not least because your in-laws are planning separate Christmases at this point. Things are out of control. And that seems uh, like a lot of work to have. And also means that Annie doesn't get to grow up around her family. Right. This does not seem like a tenable situation in the long term. And I don't think it's going to get better as she gets older. Maybe it will. Probably not. She's 10. I think most people think kids grow out of this. Hormones are about to kick in. Right. Yeah. I I would highly recommend post-wedding having a conversation about this. But I would also highly recommend having a kid not friendly wedding, a kid unfriendly wedding, or hiring a babysitter. For You're getting me worked under, up, but now I think
0: the treatment of Annie is bordering on neglect. Um, I, when I first read really this bad letter, shape. I was
2: just like, she seems to be in bad shape to the point that her, the letter writer and her fiance are setting aside time to be like, we need to check in with Annie right. to see if she's okay. And I just can't imagine that Means anything good. The two separate Christmases was really what got me because Christmas mm-hmm. is an ordeal, regardless. To have two of them is just a lot of effort expended that could be expended somewhere else.
0: Absolutely. Same with the the side child care at the wedding. But if you insist on having kids there, that's just what yes. you have to do. Um, you
2: should have that anyway, because nobody wants a two-year-old when you have some champagne. Like, come on. like Right. Let those, if you're going to have a kid-friendly wedding, at the very least, allow the parents to have a moment at the end of the night for themselves.
0: You can have the kids there for the first couple of songs, because it's cute when they're exactly. on the dance floor for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like get people yes. warmed up and then put them somewhere else. Okay, those are all the questions we have for this week. I hope we've been helpful. Rachel, you expressed some doubt about me reading your tweets. You said it made you seem like a person who just likes to lie down, watch The Bachelor, and smoke (laughs) weed, and go to therapy. But I think all of those things have come together to help you with some really good perspective. And I couldn't have done this without you. Um, whatever it is you brought to this and wherever you got it from, I appreciate it.
2: (laughs) I will be telling in order my therapist, um, the producer of The Bachelor and my weed dealer about this. So thank you so much, Janae. I had the best time. I will be putting advice columnists on my resume from now on.
0: And on your Twitter.
2: And on my Twitter. You're right. You're right. That's the most important thing.
0: Thank you so much, Rachel. Talk to you next time. Thank you. Go listen to Rachel on her Slate podcast, I C Y M I. It's your guide to internet culture. It comes out every Wednesday and Saturday. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P R U D I E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday, and you can join us for the Dear Prudence live chat on Mondays at noon Eastern.
2: If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we're looking for letter writers who'd be comfortable recording their question for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Kayla Lattimore, editorial help from Paola de Verona.
0: Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.